This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I just want to say thank you all so much for tuning in and listening. We took a little hiatus, uh, traveled in Europe, traveled the world, and then got even lazier and took the summer off. But we're back and we're just so excited for our first guest back, which I had planned, who's really been a hero of mine for years now. She's been on the show before and I get countless emails suggesting her either again as a guest or please have her as a guest. And she's in demand. She's been tireless in her advocacy on behalf of the planet and the human population. She's an atmospheric scientist par excellence. And she has a wonderful new book out. It's called Saving Us. I read it. It's fantastic. A climate scientist case for hope and healing in a divided world. And God, do we need that it's such an honor to welcome back the wonderful, the delightful, the educated, the wise, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me again. That was the uh, edited down gushing version. The original went on for about 19 minutes. <laughs> That's probably as long as my academic CV is, but nobody needs to hear that. I, I have an off the cuff question. Scientifically, is there any evidence beyond my own experience that the Canadians are a superior species to the average American? Well, that's a good question. I must admit that we are all biased, but a lot of us have, you know, some U.S. blood or some U.S. experience. And so there's always Canadian aspects that other people can pick up, I would say. So uh, a typical Canadian answer, which is humble, off the go, which is proves my thesis immediately. <laughs> well... Honestly, um, being Canadian is actually very important for me working in climate change in the United States, because climate change has been for years, you know, since the Obama administration and even before, right up at the top of the most politically polarized issues in the country where the simple you know, whether people agree with the simple facts that climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious and action is needed has little to do with their level of education or intelligence or how much they know about science and everything to do with what side of the political spectrum they're on. So often people assume that I vote Democrat or that I'm a member of the Democrat party. And so just being able to say, no, I'm Canadian, I'm not on any party. It just enables me to have that little bit of extra distance often to get my foot in the door and have some really good conversations with people who might not wanna have that conversation if they think, oh, it's just that type of person again. What an excellent take and idea. And how come basic science, and I know climate science is not basic, it's involved, but we know what we know. I've been following it now closely, thanks to the work of you and Dr. Mann, who's been on and several others. Well, it would be like all of a sudden, if in the last 10 years, gravity became a political issue and it was really a divide. Some believed, some didn't. Was this a deliberate effort to take science and turn it into something that could be debatable, even though we know it's hotter, there's more carbon in the air, regardless of what you believe or think. What's your feelings on that or your opinion or your evidence? My opinion is yes, it was a deliberate effort. And although climate science, of course, is very complex, we can explain what's happening very easily. When we burn coal and gas and oil, it produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. 
And just like you would, if someone snuck into your room at night and put an extra blanket on you, you'd wake up sweating saying, hey, I'm too warm, I don't need this. That's exactly what's happening to our planet. And the physics that explains that has been well understood and published since the 1850s. That is not a typo, 1850s. So when did people start to say, well, are we really sure it's happening? Are we sure it's humans? Are we sure it's serious? Those questions didn't start to arise until the 1990s. That's over 140 years after scientists determined it's real, it's us, and it will be serious sometime in the future. Why did people start to question the science? It's because it wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that climate change began to shift from a future issue to a present issue. You know, up until then, scientists had formally warned a U.S. president over 55 years ago of the dangers of climate change. Scientists working at Ford Motors and Exxon and Chevron had warned their CEOs of the dangers of continuing to burn or create things that burn fossil fuels. But the danger hadn't arrived yet. It was still safely in the future. And what that meant is we didn't have to do anything about it. But by the late 80s, we were starting to see really severe heat waves. Jim Hansen from NASA testified to Congress that global warming was happening. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its first report in 1990. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed in 1992. And what all those meant was we had to do something about it. And doing something about it starts with reducing and eliminating our use of fossil fuels. Well, at that time, the biggest, richest, wealthiest, most powerful, most influential companies in the world were fossil fuel companies. And they knew exactly what was happening. Their scientists had been telling them for decades. So they were ready. They said, oh, look at what the tobacco industry did. They hired spin doctors, not to tell people that smoking for sure didn't cause lung cancer, but just to sow doubt. 50-50, here's one doctor who says it does, another who says it doesn't, we don't know. They took the exact same approach and there's an amazing documentary and book called Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes that explains exactly how they did this. In some cases, they even hired the same people. So doubt of the science was deliberately introduced only about 30 years ago, and it was done not because anybody genuinely questioned the science, it's been well established since the 1800s, it was done because they knew it was the most effective way to delay action as long as possible. Well, you nailed that, and I read that book, and I knew it was the same people. Isn't that a form of manslaughtering to know that this is going to destroy all kinds of lives, both human and other lives, and and yet ignore it and almost as act as if your children are going to live in a different planet or your grandchildren. To me, that's not an impersonal bureaucratic issue. That's life and death. And people die every day. 60,000 people, I think, died in the heat wave in Europe last year, roughly. I see it every day on the news. That to me is criminal negligence. Yes, so, so much of our economy is focused on quarterly returns as if they're the holy grail and all other considerations fall by the wayside in pursuit of the quarterly returns. Um, now, climate change is directly affecting our health. Um, back in 2003, so that's 20 years ago, there was a massive heat wave in Europe that killed 70,000 people that year. But 
there's an even directer connection between burning fossil fuels and human health. And that is the fact that burning fossil fuels also produces air pollution, particulates that we breathe into our lungs. And those particulates are responsible for millions of premature deaths around the world every single year. In fact, one out of every six human deaths around the world is the result of the pollution of air, water, and soil thanks to burning fossil fuels and other industrial practices. What a price we're paying. One in six deaths is the price that we are paying for our dependence on fossil fuels and for um, not for allowing industry to pollute our land, our water, and our soil. In this moment, like right now, what is your current state of mind? You're a very upbeat, positive person. I am obsessed with reading all this stuff and talking to people like you and the other scientists I've gotten to befriend. You are even more deeply immersed. How do you digest all of this and stay so buoyant, positive, and active and involved? Well, these days... When I speak with people, when I give a presentation, I do something that I started doing the very first presentation I gave after my book, Saving Us, came out. Now, let me back up just a second and say, why did I write Saving Us? I wrote it not because I really enjoy sitting there writing books. It's a lot of work. But I wrote it because I noticed that for about four or five years, whoever I was speaking with, whether I was presenting to a group of high school students or a group of fellow scientists to the university or healthcare professionals or architects or community citizens or Catholic nuns, I was getting the same question again and again. And that question was, what gives you hope? Quickly followed by, and what can I do to make a difference? So that's why I wrote Saving Us, is to talk about what gives us hope and what we can do to make a difference. And in doing so, I learned from psychologists that the very first step is to acknowledge where we are today, not to just charge ahead with, oh, here's what you need to do to make things better, but to just spend a moment sitting in where we are and where we are is not a good place. I feel grief at the way I see places I love changing before my eyes. I feel anger at the people who knowingly and willingly made decisions that jeopardize the health and the lives of people, as well as animals and plants on this planet. Um, when I went to Paris for the um, climate meeting where the Paris Agreement was signed, I went as part of a team of scientists that was helping people from low-income countries, the negotiators from low-income countries who didn't have the resources to bring their own scientists with any science-related questions they had to inform the negotiations. And after spending time and hearing the stories of people in low-income countries who had contributed virtually nothing to climate change in terms of heat-trapping gas emissions, yet they were bearing the brunt of the impacts, I came home so angry and so frustrated for a number of weeks, I couldn't even have a conversation with anybody about, anybody about climate change without just wanting to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and scream in their face, are you deaf? Are you dumb? Do you not understand that suffering is happening because of the choices that we are making and the way that we're just closing our eyes to things that are happening today to our sisters and brothers? So we have to start with where they're at. So what I started doing before, before we can talk about hope. So I started my very first time I gave a talk on saving us by asking people, how do you feel about climate change? In one word, 
And no matter who I was speaking to, whether it was high school students or fellow scientists or architects or healthcare professionals or religious communities or you know whoever, I 95% of the words, I analyzed my data, 95% of the words I was getting were negative words, sad, frustrated, angry, hopeless, paralyzed. And that is a logical and reasonable response to what's happening. If that's the way you feel about climate change, you are not crazy. You are perfectly logical. You are not alone. Most people feel that way. That's where we have to start. So where from those feelings do we find hope? We don't find it in just trying to convince ourselves everything will be okay, because if we don't do anything about it, it won't be okay. We don't um, find hope in saying, well, everything is already okay or practicing positive thinking because it isn't. Things are very wrong. But when do we need hope? We don't need it when things are going well. We need hope when things are not going well. And hope is that small, bright light at the end of a long, dark tunnel that we know if we do everything we can, we can get there. And that's where our hope comes from, is from acting and from banding together with others and using our voices to advocate for the systemic change that we need to catalyze action. And I have seen that hope and I practice that hope. I go out and I look for stories of people and places and organizations who are making a difference. And then I've even started to share that hope. People say, well, you know, I need these stories too. So every week I have a weekly newsletter called Talking Climate. And I share good news, not so good news, because we have to understand what's happening and how it affects us, and something concrete people can do to make a difference. And that is where I find my hope. I find my hope in the actions I take and in the actions that I see others taking, realizing that giant boulder of climate action is not stuck at the bottom of a steep cliff with nobody trying to push it up. It's already at the top of the hill. It's rolling down the hill in the right direction. It has millions of hands on it. And if I add mine, and if I use my voice to encourage someone else to add theirs, it will go faster. That to me is hope. What is the current level that is needed in terms of urgency and action to meet what you're seeing in the data, the heat, the flooding, the permafrost, the hurricanes, you name it. You Anybody who's got eyes sees it. What level of urgency and action is needed now to deal with what is unfolding now, not even talking about the future. What do we need to be doing now? Well, I have a scientific answer to that. And the answer is as much as possible, as soon as possible. <laughs> so, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of thousands of scientists from all around the world that come together every um, six or seven years to produce a assessment report. Um, they produced a report looking at the difference between a one and a half and a two degree Celsius warmer world. And the conclusion of that report was this. Every bit of warming matters. Every action matters. Every choice matters. There's no magic threshold. Like, you know, if we keep warming below one and a half degrees, everybody will be fine. But if we get to 1.51 degrees, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. That's not the way it works. It's a lot closer to the way smoking works. There's no magic number of cigarettes you can smoke with no lung damage, like, you know, 9,999 cigarettes, you're totally fine. But if you smoke that one extra cigarette, then you all of a sudden, boom, you've got lung cancer overnight. We know that's not the way it works. And it's the same with our carbon emissions. So I know that the faster we reduce our carbon emissions 
And the more we reduce our carbon emissions, the better off we'll all be. And that's why every little bit of action matters. Every little bit makes a difference, but we're not moving fast enough yet to avoid the most dangerous impacts. And that's why we need to speed this thing up. What level of response are we at? If, to me, it almost, and I'm just making this up, feels like if we needed a 10, we're at one or two. Well, it feels like we're at a one or two, but I would give it a slightly higher number. So before the Paris Agreement was signed back in 2015, we were on track to a world that would be four to five degrees Celsius warmer by the end of the century. Yeah, so like eight or nine degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Now, people say, well, that doesn't sound like that much. I mean, it's, you know, between where I am inside and where I am outside, or if you're listening and you're outside, where you are outside and, you know, where you're going inside, there's a bigger temperature difference. So why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the temperature of the planet is as stable as that of the human body. Over the course of a day, our body temperature goes up and down by a few tenths of a degree, and that's very normal. Over the course of human civilization on this planet, the average temperature of the planet has gone up and down by a few tenths of a degree. Now, it's gone up by more than that in the past, but we didn't have 8 billion people and $50 trillion worth of infrastructure on the planet. There's also been five major extinctions that completely revolutionized the face of the planet and the type of life that could live on that planet. So in terms of our experience, we have never seen climate changing this fast. Today, we've seen a warming of almost two degrees Fahrenheit. Well, what happens if your body warms by two degrees Fahrenheit? You're running a fever. You feel achy. You can feel the symptoms affecting your body. And if your body temperature went up by eight to nine degrees, in most cases, we couldn't cope with that. That would be beyond what we could cope with. And it's the same for human civilization. Our civilization, I'm not talking about our physical bodies. I'm talking about our civilization, our water, our infrastructure, our supply chains, our um, economic system, even our geopolitical boundaries, our food systems, they can't cope with an eight to nine degree Fahrenheit change. Before the Paris Agreement, that's where we were headed. Today, less than 10 years later, thanks to policies that have already been enacted, not promised, but enacted, we are heading for a world that is likely to be about 2.7 to 3 degrees Celsius warmer. That's about, you know, five to six degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Now, that's still too much, but five to six is better than eight to nine. So in terms of where we're at, I would actually give it, you know, a three and a half out of 10. Um, again, still not enough, but we as humans tend to focus a lot more on the negative than the positive. And I'm not arguing for focusing more on the positive than the negative. What I'm arguing for is 50-50. I think it's really important if you're climbing the steepest mountain you've ever climbed in your life, you got to keep looking at the top and the path ahead of you, but you got to stop periodically, turn around and look at how far you've come to realize that you really are making progress and use that progress to motivate you to climb even further and faster. Is what you're seeing unfolding now more dramatic and more uh, violent and aggressive and also much sooner than the models had predicted to me? science tends to be more conservative. It feels like what we're seeing now, I thought was going to come much later, but it feels like it's arriving sooner. And in ways like some of the stuff that's going on in Antarctica or winter in South America with temperatures near hundred degrees, stuff that we didn't see coming or I didn't see coming or read. Are you, is that a reality or is that just the uh, average Joe, me looking at things? Yes and no. Uh, so in terms of 
global average temperature, we are tracking right with projections that scientists have been making for 50 years. So global average temperature is right on track with where we expect it to be today. But in terms of the extremes, we are seeing greater frequency and intensity of extremes than we expected. And part of that is because extremes with extremes, we don't have a big sample size. And in fact, some of the extremes we're seeing today are so extreme that we don't have any recorded in human history. So we as scientists have been trying to predict the impacts of climate change on these what used to be very rare events, now increasingly frequent events, and we didn't have a lot to work with. And scientists are inherently conservative, small c conservative, in that if we don't know something, we prefer not to say it. And so as a result, we knew that we were likely underestimating the extremes, but we didn't have any data to show that it might be that much worse. Um, and so now, unfortunately, we are garnering that data and we're starting a, an emerging field of climate science, which I think is really, really um, impactful, is the area of attribution. We are starting to be able to put numbers on exactly how much more likely or how much worse or how much more damaging or how much more expensive human caused climate change made one individual event. So we can calculate that the devastating heat wave in uh, June 2021 and the wildfires in June 2021 were 150 times more likely because of climate change. With Hurricane Harvey, they calculated that three quarters of the economic damages that occurred as a result of Hurricane Harvey was because of how climate change supersized that hurricane and helped it be bigger, stronger, and dump a lot more rain. And then in terms of wildfire, before the Canadian wildfire season really got going in early May, an analysis was published showing that 37% of the area burned across Western North America in the last 40 years was due to the emissions of carbon from 88 companies. So we are connecting the dots directly between who done it and how much it cost. And I feel like once the lawyers get a hold of that information, we could see some really, really impactful court cases coming out of that. I read that. And also, like you say, once they start actually paying, it might increase their urgency. Aren't you amazed at what the earth is doing like in the last two years or even the last eight months? a year one day it's the greatest fire they've ever seen two days later in greece the greatest flood you've ever seen half of canada's on fire the smoke's in new york oh look the water and and around the everglades is 100 degrees and in florida a friend of mine's daughter was diving off the keys a couple weeks ago she was at 135 feet and the temperature was 86 degrees it's almost like I'm watching a sci-fi horror movie, but I'm also amazed, <laughs> you know, like the God of death, Shiva's approaching, but my Lord, she's beautiful and magnificent. Yeah. Or the, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, I, I think that my colleague, Gavin Schmidt, who's a climate scientist at NASA really said it best. He said, as climate scientists, we are shocked, but not surprised. And what he meant by that is we have always known that climate change is loading the weather dice against us. We have always known, in fact, I've used this analogy in my presentations for years now, that wherever we live, it's as if we have a set of natural weather dice and we always have a chance of rolling a double six, a heat wave, a storm, a flood, a drought. 
But as the planet warms, it's like climate change is sneaking in and taking numbers on our dice and replacing them with more sixes and even some sevens and some eights. So one year, maybe next year, we'll still roll ones or twos and we'll be like, oh, no big deal. But we knew long ago that we would start seeing way more sixes, sevens, and eights showing up. And you know, when you throw dice, you never know what you're going to get. You could get a whole bunch of sixes and sevens and eights in a row. That's what we got this year. So we weren't surprised, but we were shocked as humans, just like you said, because we're actually seeing this in front of our eyes. Like it's one thing to see it on paper or in your computer modeling and, you know, to be talking about it hypothetically or theoretically. Um, you know, it's like talking about um, something that you've never seen before. And then all of a sudden it's right there in front of your eyes. And you're like, well, I know that I've written about it and I've talked about it and I've studied about it, but here it is. It's like almost like confronting a dinosaur in person when you're a paleontologist. It's like, that is shocking. <laughs> Man, that thing's big. Yes. And those teeth are really long and sharp. <laughs> They're faster than I thought. That was my last thought before I was eaten. Yes, exactly. And I'm in New England on an island called Martha's Vineyard. And it the heat index today is almost 100 in September. We never used to even have an air conditioning all summer on because it was chilly. We once had a fire on the 4th of July. That was 35 years ago. And I've just like the heat and it lasts longer and and the thickness of the humidity and i've watched how it just throws off this perfect divine cycle of life yeah i'm not worried about the earth but it just it becomes unlivable for narcissistic primates at phoenix 30 something days over 115 Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in in Texas in Central Texas, and it's been over a hundred almost every day. Today it's 106, and it is just miserable. And and this is part of people realizing that it's not the future anymore, and it's not polar bears anymore, all, all by themselves. It's us too, because even people I speak to in Texas who've lived here all their life, they're like, yeah, sure, it's summer, and sure, summer's hot, but not like this. My friend Chris Hall, who listens and supports the show, is in Dallas uh, being a great son to his elderly father. He can only walk before like 7.30 a.m. Then they're in for the day because it's it's so oppressive all summer. You're in Texas. Uh, a moment of silence for you there. Uh, condolences. A Canadian who went to Texas to try to help. There's definitely a Joan of Arc if there's reincarnation in your in your past lives. What's it like? To me, I'm like in love with you on a scientific level, and you're the greatest thing and a hero to me and a heroine. What's it like, though, the, to try to say, you know, look what's coming. I'm here to help and to receive so much attack, vitriolic. You know, I know you probably have a thick skin, but you're also a human being who's very sensitive. You're trying to help and you're being attacked. I, I follow you in every in every forum. You keep on going, but you, that's got to be hard as a human being, or do you compartmentalize that? Is that another office? It's definitely hard because I am a human being, and you mentioned Joan of Arc. I don't want to end up like her. Uh, she was burned at the stake for anybody who doesn't know that story. Um, I also feel quite a bit like Cassandra, who was not listened to at all. Um, and the closer we get to meaningful climate action, 
the stronger the denial becomes, because remember, we talked about this earlier, denial is all about avoiding action. It isn't really about questioning the science. If people really question the basic physics that explains how climate is changing, they wouldn't be using airplanes or stoves or fridges either because it's the same physics. So, so the closer we come to action, the stronger the denial gets and shooting the messenger is one of the tried and true human defense mechanisms. Um, so, so I won't, it's tough. I mean, the, the straight out hate, the sort of more, more subtle, um, you know, condescension and head padding and dismissal, um, the direct attacks and sometimes even threats are concerning. And as, as a woman, as a mother, um, I've had to think very carefully about what can I do to, um, you know, to keep on going, especially with the avalanche of hate that I get online. And so blocking people, um, you know, limiting, limiting people's access, never Googling my name, certainly not reading the comments on, on anything. Those are all self-defense mechanisms that I've had to implement in order to keep myself going. But the, the most important lesson I've learned though, and this I think is sort of a general human lesson, but I've had to learn it myself and remind myself of it almost every day is, who I am does not depend on what other people think of me. Um, and so they can call me names, they can dismiss me, they can condescend to me, they can say, I don't know things, or I should have said this, or I should have done that. But that's not who I am. And just sort of reaffirm affirming your identity, um, not based on what other people say or think about you, but on who you truly are. And a big part of that for me personally is my faith. That's what keeps me going. Oh, and I would say too, re returning to why I'm doing this, I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it out of love for the people I love, for the places I love, for the things I love, and for everyone else who doesn't have a voice um, that they can use to catalyze change. And when I return to that, then you know it really is all worth it. And aren't you doing it out of a love for God? Uh, absolutely, um, a love for God and for God's creation and the fact that the Bible says, that we should be recognized by our love for others. And again, the reason I became a climate scientist is when I realized that climate change affects the poorest and most marginalized people in the world. Women and girls living in low-income countries, people who don't have safe places to live or the opportunities that we take for granted of going to school or accessing basic healthcare, that's really not fair. And that's a large part of why I'm fighting so hard for change. For whatever you do to the least, you do to me. That's right. What is an evangelical? Because when I think of it, I have a very negative connotation, and I always have to remind myself that I know you and know of you. Uh, can you define it for yourself? To me, they're the people climbing over the Capitol or pushing for tax cuts or God only knows what else. And I'm not a biblical scholar, but I can tell you, Jesus never said 99% of what they're trying to do. What What is an evangelical? How do you define it for, for yourself? Well, that is an excellent question, and it was one that I have asked myself to the point where I was wondering, should I even call myself that? Pretty brave. I th and you thought the climate crowd was tough. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, so first of all, let me say that in the United States, evangelical means something today that is radically different than what it has meant in the past in the United States and is radically different than what it means in any other country around the world. And in fact, I would call, I would add a term to it. In the United States, I would call it political evangelical. 
Why is that? It's because surveys in the United States have shown that 40% of people in the US who identify as evangelical don't go to church. And if they don't go to church, where are they getting their belief system from? They are not getting it from the Bible. In fact, many of them wouldn't recognize the Bible if it bit them in the rear. They are not getting it from a pastor, a minister, a religious leader, or any type of theology. They're getting it from political ideology. And so for many, for many evangelicals in the US, their statement of faith is written first by their political ideology, a distant second by the Bible. And if the two come into conflict, they will go with political ideology over the Bible. In fact, there's an excellent writer for The Atlantic called Peter Weiner, and he writes about the state of the church today. And in one of his articles, he mentioned how he had, he had been speaking to pastors around the country, and they were sharing with him that people were leaving their church, not because they disagreed with the theology of the church, but because they felt the church was not taking a strong enough stand speaking out for right-wing politics. So they were leaving the church for political reasons. So we got to understand this landscape because this is radically different than any other use of the word, again, back in history or in any other country. And I myself am Canadian. So coming to the US and this, this sort of gradually sinking in, it's, it's almost like, you know, you call yourself X and then you find all these other people who call themselves X and you're like, oh, we must be the same X. And you realize, no, they're actually speaking a totally different language. Like they're speaking Cyrillic <laughs> or writing in Cyrillic. So I, I asked um, the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, who I was fortunate enough to connect with, a man called Leith Anderson. I said, Leith, after I'd been here a couple of years, I said, how do you define an evangelical? Because I was wondering, should I even be calling myself that? Because I am not a person who goes with political ideology over the Bible. Um, I am very much the opposite. I am not a person who would leave a church because they weren't speaking out strongly enough for right-wing politics. The theology is very important. In fact, that's the entire basis of why I'm a climate scientist is because that's what, what I believe demanded of me. And Leith said something very insightful. He said, the definition of an evangelical is someone who takes the Bible seriously. And I said to myself, well, I feel like I am definitely that. And then I said further, I will be damned if I let people bastardize and corrupt that term and take it away from me. I'm going to call myself somebody who takes the Bible seriously. And if they are people who don't, I will call them out on it. And so that is why I do still call myself an evangelical, a theological evangelical, even though that term has been co-opted to mean something radically different. In fact, more times than not, the position of a political evangelical is diametrically opposed to what the Bible actually says. Boy, it sounds just like my friend Richard Rohr, who's been on the show countless times, talking about that. He, when Trump was running and, and, and everything calling himself a Christian and they were supporting him, he said he couldn't think of a person more diametrically opposed to Jesus than Donald Trump, and that these people had little to nothing to do with the teachings of, teachings of Jesus or scripture. And he said, I hate to be mean about it, but it's, that's the accurate assessment. If you, and he's, you know, he's, he's a theologian and I'm sure you're familiar with him and the lover of God and Jesus. So what you just said is backed up by people who really know theology. That's exactly it. But again, it isn't the theology or the Bible or, or even religious leaders that are driving this 
you know, sort of claiming of a veneer or window dressing of Christian values on values and positions that are actually, again, diametrically opposed to what the Bible says. And so uh, a number of years ago, about 20 years ago, um, people realizing that those who self-identified as evangelical tended to be more doubtful about climate change, but not realizing that when you factor in political ideology, that accounts for it. They gathered together a bunch of religious leaders and put them on a boat and took them to Alaska to show them the impacts of climate change firsthand. And when you see the impacts, it's very obvious. I mean, you know, the glacier used to be here and now you can hardly see it up the valley. And so the vast majority of those religious leaders were like, okay, I get it. This thing's real. And it does directly connect to everything from our mandate in Genesis to be good stewards of God's creation to all through the Bible, how it talks about loving and caring for not only the most seemingly insignificant aspects of creation, but also our sisters and brothers as well. And then at the end of the Bible, it says, God will destroy those who destroy the earth. And so the religious leaders got it, but then they went back to their churches. And what they found in many cases was if they decided that this is something they had to speak up on, a lot of people left. They didn't want to hear it because it wasn't consistent with their ideology. Or then for some others, unfortunately, the way Protestant churches are set up in America is very different than the way Catholic churches are set up, which is the pastor's salary depends on the congregation. And so some of them just did the cold, hard calculation. They're like, well, I'm not going to have a salary to put food on the table for my family if half the church leaves. So this really isn't a priority for me. And that's because that isn't, that isn't what's driving people to reject the science. It isn't theology, even though there is religiously sounding window dressing on the denial. You know, God's in control. So, you know, nothing's going to happen. Well, you know, in Genesis 1, it says God gave humans responsibility over every living thing on this earth. Or, you know, the world's going to end anyway, so why does it matter? Well, in the Bible, people were saying to the Apostle Paul, oh, the world's going to end anyway, so why work? Why earn money? Why support the church? And he was like, get a job. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. And right now you're called to love people and care for people, which is what climate action is. So I have this little uh, YouTube series called Global Weirding. And I address common questions I get. And what's really interesting to me is the quest, the episode where I address the religiously sounding objections to climate change is one of the most watched and one of the most popular episodes I have. I have seen it. It's great. And really that sort of evangelical uh, political Christian, it's all about really white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny. This is much to do with Jesus as having a Costco card. Yet it's really nothing to do with it. It's just, it calls itself that you you know you have the your word means something different around the world but you've accurately set it aside and and you know if we don't change i didn't know the last line of genesis said if we don't adapt you know the people are going to be eliminated i think that's what will happen it, ironically genesis would have been completely true if we if we don't make some changes yeah and that was actually at the end of the bible in revelation very appropriately where it says that but even so it isn't a case of those who are most responsible for the problem reaping the consequences in proportion to their contribution. The richest 1% of people in the world produce twice the carbon emissions of the poorest 50%, 5-0%. And if you look at who's most impacted by climate change, it's those people who've produced the least. And so the suffering, the unfair and unjust suffering that climate change is 
um, imposing on people today who've done little to contribute, on future generations who've done nothing to contribute, on um, plants and animals that have done absolutely zero to contribute, um, is just unfair. And so that's why when the science says that every bit of warming matters, every bit of warming we prevent will prevent some quantity of suffering. That's why I fight. And that's why it's so important that we keep going because we know we can make a difference. Did you have a direct experience? Is that how you came to embrace this? Or was it just you were raised that way and it made sense? It resonated? Did you have any kind of, I would say, ethereal, metaphysical event that sort of like, wow, you you obviously weren't knocked off a horse like Paul, but did something happen? Um, well, I had a very um, scientific <laughs> encounter, which is appropriate, right? Scientific Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because what is science other than trying to figure out, you know, from my perspective, trying to figure out what God was thinking when he set the whole thing up in the first place. Um, so so I grew up, um, first of all, in, in a family and in a community, a faith community, where caring for others was very much part of what we learned. Um, when I was nine years old, we moved to South America, to Colombia, where my parents worked, uh, taught and worked as, as uh, missionaries in the local church. And so just you know, seeing with your own eyes what poverty looked like, what not having a safe place to live looked like, or running water or drinkable water or enough food, seeing what that looked like and having friends who were in that situation really was opened my eyes at a very young age to the fact that we're much more vulnerable to what nature and increasingly climate change fueled extremes can throw at us than we often assume here in North America until we're hit ourselves. Um, but I knew I always wanted to do science and I was actually studying astronomy and physics at the university and planning to be an astrophysicist when I needed an extra class to finish my undergrad degree. And I looked around and there was this brand new class on climate change. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? And I, of course I, I knew that climate was changing and I knew that humans were responsible, but I had learned about it in the context of my geography class. And so I thought of it as a future issue not yet a present issue and an issue that affected plants and animals, but not people. We learned about it along with, you know, pollution and deforestation and, you know, biodiversity loss and habitat destruction. But what I learned in that class was that, yes, it does affect plants and animals. And of course that does matter, but it also affects us. And like I said, it affects the poorest and most marginalized people the most, and it's already doing it today, not in the future. And so that it wasn't a specific moment. It was more sort of that knowledge gradually unfolding in front of me and then sinking deeper and deeper and then connecting with what was really important to me, which is to make a difference and to um, work with people and to do what I could to meet people's needs. And then they just sort of those, those two desires just sort of came together to the point where after about a year when I was actually literally applying for graduate schools in astrophysics. I started to think to myself, what am I doing? Is this really what I should be doing with my life? And then I started to look into, well, if I did want to study climate change, where would I do it? Who would I study it with? What type of programs would I apply to? And then, you know, by the time I was applying, I still had sort of a foot in each camp, but I applied to graduate schools and I found when you, when you go to graduate school, it's really important to get a good advisor to work with because that really sort of shapes the direction of your work. I knew that if I did move from 
astrophysics to atmospheric science or climate science, I wanted to do it to make a difference. I didn't want to just do ivory tower research. I wanted to do research that would be used to impact people and to inform decision-making. And so I found a perfect advisor for me who is exactly the type of person who wanted to do the same thing himself. And in fact, had already worked on, you know, the ozone hole and worked with organizations like the FAA and the EPA to help regulate the different chemicals that people are using to make a difference. And I realized, yes, there is the ability to use science to do good. And that's what I want to do with my life. So it wasn't a single moment. It was more of a sort of a two-year journey, but it was definitely a huge inflection point in my life. And you're living it. I love, I'm not biblical, but I love God. I'll say that uh, without hesitation here. I love the teachings of Jesus. I also love the teachings of other great beings that have come along. But to me, rather than argue legalese or biblical, I'm just trying to live it as a fraction as well as some of those beings did. I'm just trying to love one another, love myself, love nature, be kind, be a gracious winner, and doing it radically imperfect for all those who listen and know me. And just, But just trying to be a little better and be compassionate. And when I pray and meditate, it just tells me, don't judge, you don't know. And just be kind, but have healthy boundaries and just do the best you can today. And that's all you can do. And to me, that's how I value a life well spent. You're actually extraordinary in what you've been able to accomplish. But the kind teacher or the flower cell person who's gentle and a good mom or father, they're just as valuable. And so is the cardinal that sings outside my window every day. Absolutely, 100%. Um, I'm often asked, you know, what's the impact of what you're doing? <laughs> and, you know, where are your measures and your metrics and how do you know, you know? <laughs> and... As a scientist, I actually do want to track what I'm doing to make sure it's most effective. I want to make sure I'm actually using and spending my time, which I feel like is the most valuable resource God has given each of us wisely. And so I do evaluate my approaches and, you know, is my are my presentations making a difference? Is there something I could be doing that's more effective to reach more people? But another sort of important um, lesson I've learned and something I remind myself of every day is all we need to know is the next step. You know, all we need to know, each of us, is what's the next thing that we're called to do. And it might be something small. It might be something that seems insignificant. It might be something that we might think has no impact at all. But we don't know what impact it will have. And I think it was Mother Teresa who said, you know, you, you, you just throw a pebble, a tiny pebble into a pond, and then the ripples spread beyond where you can see them. It's not up to us to be trying to track the impact of our work. All we just need to do is the next step that's in front of us. And I strongly believe um, along those lines that, you know, for example, spending time with the people we love, in the places we love, doing the things we love, that's climate action because we're reminding ourselves of why we're fighting. We're recharging ourselves, we're loving ourselves, something that we often have difficulty doing, uh, loving ourselves um, uh, by, by um, you know, connecting ourselves to, to what, what makes life worth it and what we're passionate about. Um, it, it's really, it really all, like you just said, it really all just comes down to love. And I'm just so grateful that what I believe and what the Bible says is that God's love has already been poured out into our hearts. So it isn't like we have to drum up the love ourselves. We don't have to generate it ourselves. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I feel like my gas tank is running pretty low. But it's sort of more like we're just the conduit of sort of a hose. Uh, um, and, and all of nature is too, and other people are too. And 
just being able to step back, take that deep breath when, you know, the discouragement or the despair or the grief or the attacks and the hate overwhelm us and just reconnect to the people, the places, the things that we love and the fact that it isn't about us to, you know, drum up that ourselves. We just have to plug into and share the love that already exists. Mm, beautifully said, the power of surrender. It's so much bigger than I can comprehend. And then I just try to stay present in the now and do the next right thing. And the same and let tomorrow, if it's even given, take do the same thing, stay in the now. And of course, I always want to get ahead and how does the movie end and or think eight years ahead. And it's just just be here now and be loving in your own way. I don't think there are small acts. Rosa Parks once didn't give up her seat and ignited the civil rights movement. And I don't think God has some great scorecard. You know, the march on this is bigger than the smile when somebody needed it. We don't know. Just be loving and do the best you can. That's that's all I know to do. And you're you're doing it. And the gas tank does get low, and it's okay then to take care of ourselves. This I've talked about on many shows, and I find it universally with the billionaire or the famous person or anybody. Why is it so hard to love ourselves? That seems to be the greatest challenge of all. Any theories, any science, or just any gut feelings? Oh, there's science, there's theology, there's psychology about that. It is. And so that's why, again, another another core part of our, our faith as Christian faith is that God already loves us and already accepts us. It isn't that there's this list of things that we have to tick off to constantly achieve in order to earn that, but it's already there. Um, somebody has already accepted us fully and unconditionally. And that's, I mean, that's hard to wrap your mind around. But if somebody else has done that, then maybe we could start to do that too. I like that because my ego, when I asked that question, the ego would say, have you looked in the mirror lately? I was like, well, you know, but God, we are God's creation. And you you are just such a bright light. Will you just, I know you have to go because, and you've been incredibly generous already with your time. Will you just outline some of the things the listeners can do who are listening all over the world? We have a beautiful global audience, which is mind-blowing. And we have a lot of people who write in about climate and our climate shows get tons of listenership. Speaking of the now, today, tomorrow, what can the listener do in their own way that can help be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem? Well, if you're listening to this, you've probably already thought about, you know, replacing your light bulbs and eating more plants and looking at how you travel, whether public transportation or bike or getting a plug-in car. But we also instinctively know that making changes in our personal life to reduce our personal carbon footprint isn't going to fix the problem. We need system-wide change. But what is a system made up of? It's made up of individuals. And how does the system change? How did women get the vote? How was slavery abolished? How were civil rights enacted? How was apartheid ended? It didn't, all of those things did not end when a president or a prime minister or a big, rich, wealthy, famous person sort of woke up one morning and said, oh, we need to get rid of this unfair, unjust system. That's not how it happened. It happened when ordinary people, people of no particular power or wealth or fame, but powered by their convictions, realize the world must change. It has to change. The, the arc of the world must bend towards justice. And so what they did was they used their voices. Of course, they made changes in their personal life, but they 
What, how they changed the system was they then shared those with other people. They advocated for change. They reached out within the organization they were part of, the place of work that they were part of, the city, the country, the region they were part of, the governing system that they were part of, the school, the university, or the church they were part of. And they used their voice to advocate for change. And today, we know a few of those names. We know a few of the names of the women, like Susan B. Anthony that advocated for vote, votes for women. We know a few of the names, like we know William Wilberforce who advocated for the abolition of slavery. We know Martin Luther King, we know Nelson Mandela, but there were thousands, tens of thousands of people who also used their voices to advocate for and support and push that through. And we live in their shadow today. And today we have an opportunity to change the world we live in so that future generations will live in our shadow as well. And so the most important thing you can do, and this is literally the title of my TED talk, <laughs> the most important thing you can do is to use your voice to call for change wherever you are, because whoever you are, you're unique. You live somewhere, you're connected to people or organizations or places of work, you have a unique ability or talent that nobody else has. So when we talk about why this matters to us here and now, not about the polar bears or the ice sheets, but about what's happening here and now in ways that affect the people and places and things that we already care about. And then that's the 50% that's negative. The 50% that's positive, we need to talk about what positive constructive solutions look like that we could engage in together. That is how change begins. That is the first step, sort of knocking over the first domino in that long trail that leads to a better future. It is not sufficient, we need action, but how does action happen? It happens when we use our voice to call for it and every single person can do it. I know eight-year-olds who are doing it. I know 95-year-olds who are doing it. Every single one of us has that ability and that's the most effective thing we can do. The Mississippi starts with a single drop of rain. That's right. Or as Bill McKibben says, the most effective thing an individual can do right now is not be such an individual. Mm, I love him. Bill, if you listen, please come on. You've threatened to come on. Please come on. It's true, though, because then what else could we do with our lives? It's more worthwhile than leaving the place, a better place for uh, the ones who come after us. And just what a way to honor whatever you believe in or just to live a better life, even if you're an atheist and don't want to live in a 180 degree heat wave. Just do what you can. And one thing I found interesting, because I was in Europe for three months, everywhere I went, Catherine, the only thing people wanted to talk about was climate breakdown, climate catastrophe, climate change, policies. I was, I loved it, even though it was good times. I felt like I wanted to jump off a bridge or two. But why? At least I'm going to stick around and try to be part of the solution. But in America, I think less than 6% of the people have a climate conversation. So just bring it up. Don't be didactic. Don't preach. Don't yell and scream. Don't talk about doom, even if you feel it. Just start talking about it. I'm surprised that over here how many people are, are just radically unaware. And that's a media issue. And it's another show we'll do. But be the one who brings the information. Bring, Send the link to Catherine's page. Buy somebody the book. Start the conversation. I think that can be a powerful beginning. I absolutely agree. And so, like I said, in my TED Talk, I lay out the three steps. Start with something you have in common connect the dots to how climate change affects it, and then bring up a positive solution. In my book, Saving Us, I have so many examples of conversations. And in fact, I had just about finished my book and I was doing the final review on it. And I asked my sister, who's a technical editor, to give it a read and let me know what she thought. So she did and she said, well, it's great, but you forgot a chapter. I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, 
you forgot to write a chapter on how to actually have the conversation. Like, how do you start it? What do you say? If somebody does this, what do you do? So I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. So I literally wrote a chapter in the book that this is how you have the conversation. And then I added tons more examples of other conversations people have had. And there's even been studies by the Yale program on climate communication that show the power of having these conversations. And then people said to me after the book was published, well, I need more stories. So then that's where I started my talking climate newsletter every week. So I have so many resources. If you're worried about how to have a conversation, you you know, whether you like to read a book or listen to a book, whether you want to listen to a TED talk, whether you want a weekly newsletter, whether you want to just, you know, listen to this podcast again, every possible way that we can get this information out, I am trying to do that. And the last thing I want to say is we learn from our mistakes. And so if you have a conversation that goes horribly wrong, oh, I've had those too, believe me. And you learn from them. And it tells you, you know, how, what not to do next time or what type of conversations to avoid in the future, where to go differently. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about failure. You learn from failure. Just jump in and do it. And nine times out of 10, I think I would venture to say, based on the stories I've heard from people, you will be very pleasantly surprised with the result. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.